0: Well, good evening. I think one of, the, um, one of the hardest things, especially when you've done relatively little, is to write your own, well here's your big word for the evening, to write your own hagiography. That's a big word that means the summary of things that you think people should know about you. It's an awful task to have to write that, it really is. You know? I'm reminded of a time you uh you folks may know Jamie Martin quite well and he's my brother-in-law and my friend my elder my business partner so as I've often said to him we can never have a fight that doesn't finish very quickly if you're angry with me you have to punch me in the nose quickly and we have to move on um one of his favorite introductions was actually it was my privilege to introduce him at a very formal meeting and the way I introduced him was this I said and now a man who needs no introduction and I left him the platform that to me is the best kind of hagiography but I will tell you that um, well let me begin this way because we're certainly going to have to cover the subject my wife has many flaws (laughs) they're all great flaws they're flaws I've come to appreciate let me tell you this we have three in our family She has no ability to judge how much food to make for three people. She always makes too much. And I've been amazed to discover how often when we're sitting down to a meal, we hear this. Someone struggling, someone having a tough time. And when you can open the door and say, would you like to come in and have a plate? It's a lovely liberty. And it's a liberty we've taken advantage of time and time again. And I'll tell you this too, it's not our subject this evening, but on the subject of hospitality, I would be remiss if I didn't say to you, as I would say anywhere I go, if I didn't say to you that one of the most valuable tools the Lord has given you as you seek to reach the lost and as you seek to encourage your brothers and sisters, one of the most valuable tools he's given you is a willing spouse and an open door to use your home for God's glory. I won't say it's always been that way for us. We have our flaws, I assure you, and you'll see many of them on display in this pulpit this weekend. But it's been wonderful to see my wife blossom as a hostess and to open our doors to people who are maybe struggling or maybe going on well. And uh, the fellow who introduced me um, He was right. You know, if you're wandering through Sudbury and you need a place, the door's open. It always is. It always was with my parents. It always was with Lisa's parents. And we'd love to see you. We always love getting to know Christians and non-Christians, too. Anyway, I wanted to say to you, begin this evening by saying to you how much I appreciate the opportunity, because this weekend, my word, what a... (laughs) What an opportunity. Is there a better week of the year possible? Oh, you can talk about Christmas and you can talk about the incarnation and that's an amazing subject and a wonderful subject and I hope you enjoy that time of year. But is there a better moment than this moment commemorating the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Could not be a better moment. And you folks, You let me come here, and you gave me a microphone, and you asked me to talk about it. God is good. God is good. The opportunity to speak well and to think well of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, um, I greatly admire Rex and people like Rex. And I have come to appreciate over a period of time, as I've had the opportunity to share in different meetings, the value of going carefully slowly through the Word of God. I don't know if you have engaged in an annual reading program. If you do that, if you want to read through the Bible in a single year, it means you're going to read about three chapters a day. And many of us will start January 1st in Genesis 1. And, um, well, you know, March is the month reading plans go to die because you're hitting Deuteronomy. Chapters a day. You know, that's an admirable thing. I admire people who do it. My wife has been so rigorous with our son. She reads every night with him and they get through the Bible together and we do it as a family. And I bless her for her, her diligence in that regard. You know, sometimes I want to go to sleep, but no, 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 we've got to do that. She's a wonderful blessing to me. So I encourage people to read through their Bible. If you want to read through it in a year, that's great. But man, when you're going three chapters a day, you miss an awful lot to slow down to look at a small section a single verse can you imagine uh, uh, the fellow's name escapes my mind and probably you'll tell me afterwards but i remember hearing about a fellow who spoke at a conference like this over a series of i believe 6 evenings and every evening he spoke on john 3:16 never moved off it wonderful messages people were saved the the richness and the depth of this text and so when i see someone Like our brother Rex say, we're going to work through in a series of meetings, just one chapter. And tonight just one little section and we're going to go verse by verse. You've I'm sure been blessed by the ministry of someone like Bill Ewell and he'll do the same thing. And and for people to work through passages verse by verse, I so appreciate that. And I try to do that, but we're not gonna do that tonight. I've got a quote up on screen. When you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. You tell them a story. Isn't that what we say when we know someone is deceiving us? We say, stop telling stories. As if stories and truth were opposed to each other. As if they were natural enemies. As if they were opposites. That you can either have a story or you can have truth, but you can't have Both. When you want to help people, you tell them the truth. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. You tell them the story. Here's a favorite quote of mine. If you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. Well, you laugh a little bit. And I appreciate that. I think that's what we'd term a polite laugh. A ripple. I hope, as we spend some time in the Word, that this weekend... Forgive me, on Easter Sunday, on Good Friday, I hope we'll laugh a little bit. Do you know, there are some things in this book, God has a tremendous sense of humor. Can I say that gently? And I find that sometimes when people have a little laugh and they open their mouth, you can tuck some food in. (laughs) And they open themselves up to hear something wonderful and something true so i hope we can talk a little bit about story this weekend and i hope we can laugh a little bit too this is my favorite quote if you want someone to know the truth tell them if you want someone to love the truth tell them a story i think back to those years in africa because i can remember some things not many you can appreciate a five-year-old doesn't carry all that many memories But I do remember sitting on my father's knee while my brothers sat on either side of my father. And certainly he told us about the Lord Jesus and certainly he read the Bible to us and certainly he shared the gospel with us. But I'll tell you, I learned an awful lot about God's love for me through a lion named Aslan, who was voiced for me in a beautiful, mellifluous British accent by my father who did all the voices. Tumnus the fawn was very different and used to scrub different still, but Aslan was the favorite. What did you learn from story? Sometimes the truth is in a story. You think about Nathan coming to David, David's great sin. And he could have marched in and said, David, here's what you've done. But you know what he did? He told him a story. And the story had the truth in it, a bitter pill for David to swallow. I want to work tonight very quickly with you through a span of thousands of years. And it's my intention to start in Genesis and to wind up in Revelation. I'm going to violate everything I admire in a speaker tonight because I wanna give you the span of a great story. And if you'll forgive me referencing Hollywood and I suggest you reference Hollywood as little as possible, I wanna tell you tonight about the greatest story ever told. It's a story that begins for us in the book of Genesis. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn with me. But what I'm going to try to do and what I try to do generally with slides, I don't want to distract you, I don't want to put every point up there, but I do want to put scripture text up there. Some of you may not have brought your Bibles, some of you may not be able to find some references, and so we'll just put the verses up where we're reading, and if that's a help to you, that's wonderful. So Genesis 3, 7, you maybe know the background, I, I trust you do. We're living in the consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve. And what a small word that is, fall. As if it was a a trip or a sidestep or a minor mishap. It's destruction. It's it's the loss of fellowship with the Creator. Sin has come into the world and what a terrible moment it is. And and a judgment is being pronounced and there are consequences to that sin. Adam and Eve are finding the consequence, aren't they? Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And then we skip down to verse 21 and we're missing an awful lot. And there's so much that could be said about this passage. But if we're going to cover 7,000 plus years tonight, we need to move right along. So we'll skip a few verses. And verse 21 says this, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And clothed them. Adam and Eve became conscious of their, what word shall we use? Their flaws? Their failings? Should we use the word that puts everyone on edge? Their sin. And while they previously had been comfortable in the presence of a holy God, they now were hiding from Him. And consciousness of sin, and their right in thinking this, made them feel they could not be in the presence of a holy God. And when they took that stance, they aligned themselves with so many others we'll read about in Scripture who said things when confronted by holiness. They said things like, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And one of the great themes of Scripture that you'll see page after page after page is that a holy God is corrosive and destructive, if I can say that, to sin. Holiness and sin cannot coexist. We've been separated and severed from our Creator by the fall, and that's what's happened to Adam and Eve. And they hide, and they should hide, and they cover themselves. What a choice they make. pig leaves. Well, I suppose before the fall, things were fine. The animals were all friendly. The food all tasted good. But after the fall, the creation has been subjected to futility. It doesn't work the way it was designed to work. And maybe that helps you understand what you face today. And maybe as you age, like I'm aging, you discover your body doesn't work the way it was designed to work. Not quite as well as it used to. Things are falling apart. They're degrading. And it's God who has subjected the creation to futility. He's taken fallen Adam and Eve, and he's given them a fallen place in which to live because they can't dwell in a holy place. It doesn't work. And so he, if you'll forgive the phrase, he breaks creation. and He puts Adam and Eve in a broken creation. It doesn't work the way they expect it to work. And so when they choose to cover themselves, they look for something big, something helpful. Uh, They want to cover their nakedness, and surely we're talking about more than just physical nakedness, but they have a sense that they need to cover themselves, they need to hide, and they choose fig leaves. I gave you a big word before, let me give you another one. Phytophotodermatitis. They chose perhaps the worst possible covering. When you put fig leaves on skin, especially, let me not be... Overly indelicate here, especially on sensitive skin, especially on loins. You get this. Skin reacts, and you know, it gets even worse when that skin is then exposed to sunlight. And so you get this picture of Adam and Eve who are hiding. That's not going to work, by the way. God will find them. They hide from God, and they cover themselves. And the hiding doesn't work and guess what the covering doesn't work either in fact it irritates and frustrates and angers and hurts and damages now maybe we don't have to go too far tonight for you to see some parallels this is a story of some what shall we argue about the chronology bishop usher tells us this is roughly seven thousand years ago it's certainly that if not more is it relevant today do you know anybody by the way who has a consciousness of sin And decides to hide from God, which, by the way, does not work. Or chooses to cover themselves in some way, to cover themselves with good works. Or to cover themselves with flimsy justifications. You know, it's interesting, this term fig leaf, like so many phrases we find in the Bible, comes down even into our modern parlance, doesn't it? We say things like this, well, the writing's on the wall. And we don't think for a moment that we're referencing the story of Daniel. And when we say, well, that's a bit of a fig leaf, isn't it? What we mean is somebody's telling a story that does not work. Nobody is fooled. Adam and Eve choose these fig leaves to cover themselves. Well, look at verse 21. God finds them. What grace. He makes a covering for them. And this covering, unlike the covering they chose, this works. This lasts. Dare I say this comforts. I was speaking to a lady. She was a nurse for many years. She's retired now. She said, you know, it's interesting what you tell me about fig leaves and causing irritation. She says, I've seen that kind of irritation. There's other plants that do that. You know what we do with irritated skin, what we put on irritated skin, what we've put on it for years? Lamb skin. The interesting thing about God's provision here in Genesis is this, and maybe you've not noticed because it's not explicitly given to us in the text, but it would appear that when death is ushered onto the stage, if you thought it was ushered on with Cain and Abel, no, it's ushered on right here, just before Genesis 21. It is God himself, just as he breaks the creation, it is God himself who ushers death onto the stage. And it's the death of an animal. And if I was a betting man, and I'm really not, nor should you be. But if I had to guess, I think it was a lamb that died in that garden. And this book is the grand story of a lamb. And I'll suggest to you, it starts here in Genesis. I think God made provision with the death of a lamb. Here's what David has to say, because David had this experience, you see, of hiding from God. There was a period of time he took another man's wife. He took Bathsheba. And he took Bathsheba, and there was a time that he stopped reaching out to God. Seems he stopped praying. stopped reverencing God, perhaps. He hid from God. And that period of time would have been something in or around nine months, a little less. He takes another man's wife, he leads Uriah to his own death, and he brings Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, into his home. And she's pregnant at the time, and she gives birth, and that child dies. That's a period of something less than nine months, right? Nathan the prophet comes and announces the death of that child. He tells him the story, as we mentioned earlier. And David, in talking about that moment, says this in Psalm 32, how blessed is he? whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. You can try to hide from God. You can try to cover your sin in whatever way you wish. But only a covering God provides will sustain. Only a covering God provides can work. Come forward with me as you think about a lamb. Come forward a few years to Genesis chapter 22. And you know this story, don't you? Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, Isaac, the son of promise, the son that Abraham and Sarah have prayed for and rejoiced in and reveled in. And they name him laughter. He's the joy of their life. And God tells Abraham, take your son, take him to a place I'll tell you. And there I want you to to slay him. The garden, the lamb in the garden, will tell us that sin and holiness cannot coexist. There has to be a covering, and the cost of sin is death. It was death in the garden at the very start. And here Abraham is going to be taught a lesson, that sin and the covering God provides also involve sacrifice. Abraham lived in a culture where child sacrifice and human sacrifice was not unusual. The nations around frequently sacrifice children, and you gasp in horror. Well, I didn't hear you, but I'm sure you gasped inwardly. We've come so far, haven't we? We're so clever and so advanced. Can I tell you, maybe you already know, that if you are conceived as a black child in New York City in 2023, that you are more likely to be aborted than you are to be born. Greater than 50%. What are we doing with children in our culture? And now we're not sacrificing them to pagan gods. We're sacrificing them to ourselves and our own selfishness. So take your son and offer him as a burnt offering, and the two of them walk on together. And we come down to verse 13 and 14, and we read this. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behold, a ram. They don't get caught up on that. That's just a male sheep. An older male sheep. Abraham, behold, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord, please notice the tense of this verb, will provide. Abraham certainly could have said, the Lord has provided. There's the ram. I don't have to sacrifice Isaac. God is telling me he doesn't want human sacrifice. He's not like the gods of the other nations. This is a God who provides a suitable sacrifice in place of my son dying. Isn't that a good God? Isn't that a wonderful God? That sin doesn't have to mean you die or your family members die. God will provide. And Abraham speaks, I believe, prophetically when he gives God that title. Not God has provided. That would be a good title. But it will be provided. We see their picture, not just of substitution, but a picture of worship. That's what happens. The ram is offered up and it's worship to God. Abraham rejoicing that his son lives. Come forward to the book of Exodus. So many years later, what an amazing passage. The inauguration of the Passover. Israel has come into the land of Egypt and They've grown there from 12 young men to a tribes. Massive group of people, a nation really, a nation of slaves and God is going to deliver them. And you know the story of the plagues. How could you not know the story of the plague and the last plague, the worst plague, the death of the firstborn? Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, one lamb for each family and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door, the Passover. I am indebted, as I think probably many of you are, to a great writer who's long since passed by the name of Sir Robert Anderson. That's a great last name. No relation. Wish he was. But Sir Robert Anderson has a book called Redemption Truths. And, you know, I've read a lot of books in my day, not enough, I suppose. And I've forgotten most of what I've read. Maybe you have too. But I remember reading Robert Anderson talking about the Passover lamb. He takes us from this passage, he takes us to the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Do you remember that story? Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal there, and it's the big, this is the big showdown. It's the OK Corral. This is the moment. And there's many prophets of Baal. There's just one Elijah, but he's got God with him. And he speaks to the people. The people are gathered around. They love to see a show, and it's going to be quite a show, isn't it? And uh, he says to them, you know, you should really choose. Elijah addresses the people. He says, you should really choose. You should choose to serve Jehovah, or you should choose to serve Baal. You should do one of the two. And the people answer him, not a word. And this is his condemnation of them. He says, Why halt ye, quoting the good old King James, why halt ye between two opinions? Why why won't you go here or go there? You should choose. But you're sitting in the middle and you're remaining. You're obstinate. You sit right there. You won't leave. It's the same word from this passage. He'll point us further to some other passages that speak of a mother bird that halts over her nest to protect her young. She comes and she stays and she spreads her wings and she will not leave. Now, what's the story of the Passover? What's happening here? Well, God's going through, isn't he? And he's going to kill the firstborn. Is that, is that the story? Read that verse again. When he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door, that's our word, and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. What happened that night in Egypt was this. The destroyer was loosed by the order of God, the destroying angel. And I don't know exactly what the explicit orders were, but they were something like this. Kill all the firstborn. Human, animal, firstborn, kill them all. And the destroyer is loosed in Egypt that night. And what a tremendous destruction. All the firstborn killed. But the destroyer comes to the homes of an Israelite who has taken a lamb and has put the blood on the doorposts. And does the destroyer then just pass over the home, like skip it? Is that what we think Passover means? No, what happens here is that God himself comes between that home and the destroyer and says, Not here. Never here. God comes between and remains. And when you think about that, perhaps you think, as I think, of one who is described this way, he ever lives to make intercession. Does Satan have an accusation against me? Oh, he could have many. Is there an accuser of the brethren? You bet there is. But if there's a a room for judgment in heaven, if there's a courtroom scene playing out right now, And an adversary stands up and says, I know all about Anderson. I know what he's done. I know who he is. He has no claim to be your son anymore. My advocate rises up, and he comes between, and he remains, and he makes intercession. And that's the beautiful story of the Passover. That's the story of the lamb. That's the impact of the lamb. The lamb preserves. The lamb is a substitute. The lamb is worship. The lamb is preservation. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. See how well we're doing? We've moved along thousands of years. No problem, right? You're still with me? I don't hear all that many snores. That's good. We come to Malachi. What a sad book. What a sad way to close the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, God sends the prophet. Now there's going to be 400 years after Malachi prophesies. 400 years of silence before we come to the new testament as far as we know as far as recorded biblical history we have no more word from god here in malachi he says forgive the paraphrase we can read the words when you present the blind for sacrifice is it not evil and when you present the lame and sick is it not evil why not offer it to your governor would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly says the lord of hosts but Now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, nor will I accept an offering from you. People were bringing their offering. They'd been encouraged to do so. And the tradition had been there for years and years and years. This was the Jewish way to go. This was the command of God that you should bring your lamb, that you should bring your sacrifice, you should bring your offering. What were people bringing, sick and lame, instead of choosing the best, instead of choosing that which would speak even weakly of the perfection and the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ? They're bringing the sick and the lame. Here's a lamb I don't care very much about. It's not good for breeding. It's not good for eating. Let's give that to the Lord. And he says, you know what would be better? Don't do this at all. No sacrifice would be better than the kind of thing you're bringing. I wish someone would just shut the gates and turn off the flames. I don't want anything that you're bringing. Then 400 years of silence. You see, bringing your lamb, bringing your sacrifice, that was a two-party operation. Right? You get to choose the lamb you'll bring. You get to pick it. And in so doing, you demonstrate your fidelity and your faithfulness and your seriousness about being obedient. You get to choose what you will bring to God. But he, through his representative, the priest, gets to determine whether that's acceptable or not. It's a two-party operation, and for the sacrifice to be acceptable, it has to be something you bring, that you lay your hands on, you say, this is my lamb, I chose it, I identify myself with this, this is the lamb I trust to cover my sin, this one right here, and then the priest must say, yeah, this is acceptable, this is good, and the system had broken down horribly, God's angry. And he sends the prophet to tell them he's angry. And he says, I wish you'd shut the gates. And then there's 400 years of silence. Did the prophet's words resonate? Did things get better? I understand. I can't point you to chapter and verse. And maybe you'll want to correct me afterwards. But I've heard from more than one source that it went a little something like this. That... 2,000 or so years ago in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you could come to the temple with your lamb. You've traveled a distance, perhaps. You've come to Jerusalem. You want you wanted to make this offering. You think it's important. Maybe you've even been careful about it. You bring your lamb to the priests who must approve it on behalf of God. And they look at your lamb and they say, Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. This lamb will not do You've come all this way to have your sins covered, to obey God, and you've brought an insufficient sacrifice. Whatever shall we do? You've got such a long trip home. I know what we can do. We have a whole pen over here of pre-approved lambs. We've already checked them out. They're acceptable. So we'll just take your really crummy, unacceptable lamb. We'll take him. Don't worry about that. We won't use him for an offering. We'll use one of these for an offering instead. Isn't that a good deal? You just need to give us a little coin of the realm. So you reach in your wallet and you, you begin to pull out your coins. And they say, oh, dear, is that Roman money? We can't have Roman money in the temple. Filthy Roman money. What were you thinking? We need temple coin. Whatever will you do? Look over here. We have a table where we can exchange your currency. It's like going to the U.S. You know, you take hundred Canadian dollars and you get three American. <laughs> Here's your temple currency. Oh, yes, it's a little bit of a hard exchange, but you don't want to have to travel all the way home to pick another lamb, do you? <laughs> You wonder that our Lord was upset with the money changers, that he turned over the table and drove them out with whips. And he said, you're making a house of prayer into a house of commerce. This is unacceptable. This is the story in Malachi. Had things gotten better 400 years later, the Gospel of John, tracing the story of the Lamb. Oh, John, I love the way you introduce the Lord Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God. Would you notice what he says about the Lamb of God? He identifies the lamb. He says, this is the lamb that God chose. This is not Mark's lamb. This isn't a lamb you chose. This is the lamb God chose. He's speaking prophetically, isn't he? He's speaking about the kind of death the Lord Jesus is going to die. This is on day one, effectively. He says, behold the lamb of God. And would you notice the language here, too? John speaks so well. He doesn't say, who covers the sin. He says he takes it away. This is revolutionary. We know about covering. We know how God covers sin, but takes it away. Let me ask, do you think there will be anyone ashore heaven one day? Old Testament saint, men you revere, women you admire. Do you think any of them will be in heaven because they kept the law? or because they brought a good sacrifice, or did good works, or were used of God mightily, all of which might be true in a large measure. I'll tell you this, their sins might have been covered, but when God said their sins are taken away, it was by virtue of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be no soul in heaven that is not there because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did at Calvary. He's the one who takes away sin, who deals with the problem utterly and completely. No more covering sin forever taken away. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Mark. Well, that's a big job and a job that's not finished. The sin of the people gathered here tonight, well, a much bigger job. No, the sin of the world. There's something spectacular in this introduction that John gives and what a strange moment to give this introduction, because if I'm writing the story and be very glad I'm not. But if I'm writing the story, then I have John say this at the foot of the cross as the Lord dies, because now I've got a direct arrow I oh the Lamb of God and I see him dying, of course, I understand why he came and what he's here for isn't it better you know, plot wise. If we have John say that at the foot of the cross, what an interesting thing that he says it here on day one. Why does he say it? I think he says it, at least one of the reasons he says it is this. Take a look at this lamb and watch him for the next three and a half years. What kind of lamb does God bring? He brings a spotless, perfect lamb, and you'll have the opportunity to watch him and this is a lamb, the Father will open heaven again and again and again, and he'll say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Son himself would say, I always do the things that please the Father. He'll turn heavenward in a memorable moment, and he'll say, Father, glorify your name. And the reply comes, the voice speaks, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is the Lamb of God. No man could convince him of sin. Utterly flawless, utterly perfect, the perfect Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is how John introduces him to us. We move on. At least we do if my clicker works. Maybe we don't. All right, we move on in my notes. Come with me over, please to Revelation chapter five. And this is where we're going to close tonight. But let me take a few minutes and work through some of these things in Revelation chapter five because here we find the climax of the story of the lamb. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? And to break its seals. Astounding, isn't it? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Why is he weeping? I think he's weeping. Again, we're not told explicitly, but I think he's weeping because at least in part, this is the case. Here is the judgment of God against a sin-sick world. Here is the resolution of the fall that started all the way back in Genesis. Here is God going to deal with sin and human rebellion and a fallen creation finally. Here is a door that opens that means every tear can be wiped away. That every wrong can be addressed and judged and dealt with appropriately. That those things that should be forgiven would be wiped forever from the books. This is the sum up of all things. And no one can open it. The problem will never be fixed. The failures of this world and the struggles and sickness and the devastation of this world will never be addressed. And John says, what a tragedy, and he weeps. No one in heaven worthy to open it. Can you imagine such a thing? Oh, but the story's not over there, is it? One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. Who will resolve the problems of this world? The lamb. It begins in the garden with a lamb. It's going to come to a crashing and wonderful conclusion, ultimately, because of a lamb, the only one worthy. And he's standing as if slain because it's his very death and his resurrection and his ascension that qualifies him to be the one to close the book on human history and sin and the fall. And so he will do it. We don't have the passage on screen, and that's okay. I hope you're over in Revelation chapter 5. If you're not, you might want to turn there. When he had taken the book, verse 8 says, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Let me just stop there for a brief aside, because this is one of those verses, and Scripture is constantly like that. If you will stop and slow down and take just one verse with you, if you'll meditate on it if you'll chew on it if you will slow down enough to read what it actually says i think it'll bless you what's the picture here in this verse well we have the lamb and we have these angels and these elders right the four living creatures 24 elders and they're each holding a harp and golden bowls that's plural full of incense okay so there's an aroma in heaven there's a beautiful smell in heaven that's what incense is it's a smell you chose to have right incense is a smell that is pleasing to you and so there is something that God has chosen to have in heaven as this judgment is commenced and what is it it's incense well that's interesting right there's a nice smell in heaven great story oh well what is the incense It's the prayers of the saints. Oh, I think that needs some qualification. But the qualification seems to be missing here. It doesn't say which are the really good prayers of the really good saints. The really heartfelt prayers, the prayers that were answered, the prayers that were powerful. There's no qualification here at all, and I don't quite know what to make of that. But in heaven... God is surrounded constantly by choice. He wants this by prayer. He loves it. And I wonder what prayers aren't included here. The quick little prayer that you ushered off in a panic. The brief, maybe doubting prayer that you offered. What's there? I don't know. But I do know God loves prayer, and he's filled heaven with the aroma of it. Golden bowls, this is something that's precious to him. And when you pray, he hears, and he fills heaven with the aroma of your prayers. These are the prayers of the saints. But we go on, verse 9, And they sang a new song. Why don't they sing Amazing Grace? Don't we like Amazing Grace? Isn't that a terrific song? Don't you love to sing that? Don't you think it's worthwhile and laudable? Don't you think it expresses some deep truth? Maybe you don't like Amazing Grace. That's okay. Why don't they sing when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Lord of glory died? My richest gain I count but loss. I pour contempt on all my pride. Wouldn't that be a good song to sing as the Lamb takes the book and opens the seals? Mm-mm. Everybody who's there says, you know what? This is so spectacular. This is so much more than we ever could have imagined. It requires a new song. We must say something new because this is more wonderful than we ever could have dreamt, than any hymn writer on earth ever imagined or ever put pen to paper. As wonderful as those words might be, they pale against the reality. Scripture tells us one day we'll see the Lord Jesus and he'll be marveled at among all who believe. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you have a high opinion of him? Let me tell you something I know about you. It's not high enough. He is altogether lovely. You have no idea what he's like, and neither do I. They sing a new song because a new song is appropriate. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. What will that singing sound like? I mentioned to a brother... How much I enjoy the Guelph men's conference when you hear sisters forgive me when you hear hundreds of men sing in unison and it seems like the roof is going to come off the place it's glorious. It's nothing compared to this. The elders singing the angels singing right isn't this what happens look at verse 11 then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. See, the song started with just a few, right? Here's the the 24 elders who fell down before the Lamb. They sing the new song in verse 9, but in verse 11, it seems that all the angels of heaven around the throne and thousands and thousands of myriads of myriads. This is way better than the Guelph Conference. They hear the song and they say, Oh, we need to join in. This is good. And they take up the song. But that's not the end of it. That's not enough, is it? Verse 13, every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Everything takes up the song, everything rejoicing in what the Lord Jesus Christ is able to do, what the lamb will do. The lamb that I would suggest to you is shadowed for us very subtly in Genesis, but carries all the way through Scripture. You know, I said to you that the offering of a lamb was a two-party operation, and so it is. You choose a lamb and you lay your hands on it and you say, my sin is identified with this lamb. You take that lamb and you give it to God. And he accepts it or he doesn't. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's pre approved lamb. God has already laid his hands on him. He's declared to the world by the resurrection from the dead this is an acceptable lamb. The sacrifice has been accepted by God. But it's a two party operation. You see, and you must lay your hands on the lamb too. You must say, God, this is my lamb. He is my lamb. He is the one that my sin is to be identified with. He's the one who will not just cover it. He'll take it away. He's my lamb. What will you come to God with? You know, I'm reasonably confident as I address you tonight, such lovely open faces, such grace that I've received. I suspect I probably am talking to nothing but Christians tonight. Wouldn't it be great if that was true? I hope everyone here tonight has already said the Lord Jesus Christ is my lamb. But if you were here tonight and you have not, then I will ask you this, what will you do? You cannot hide from the judge of all the earth. You cannot hide from the one whose eyes are a flame of fire. You cannot hide from holiness, it won't work. And you're covering whatever it might be, the good things you've done, the family you've raised, the career you've had, the law keeping that you've fooled yourself into thinking you've done, whatever it is, it fails. I want to be among the number here described in Revelation that one day we'll be singing the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ and reveling in what he's done at the cross and through the empty tomb so we've covered a very large span tonight and i'll confess that in the sessions that remain we'll narrow it down a little bit tomorrow night we'll talk about one verse right that ought to make your head snap a little bit we'll talk really about one verse so i'll scale it back but i wanted to give you the span i wanted to walk you through human history and I wanted to introduce you, maybe in a fresh way, to the wonders of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in order of prayer. Father, we um, we work our way through this marvelous book, and we see the pen of many writers over the span of millennia, but all of them in their own way. Pointing to the one grand theme of this book, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for our time together this evening. We thank you for each one who has troubled themselves to make the effort to be here. And we would pray, Father, for a blessing for everyone. We're instructed in your word to come boldly to a throne that is characterized not by power, not by judgment not by sovereignty though it could be characterized by all those things but we come to a throne characterized hebrews tell us tells us by grace it's your ruling principle and we each of us in our own way whether we realize it fully or not are entirely dependent tonight on your grace and so we ask by your grace that you would bless us not because we deserve it not because we've done something wonderful but because we have put our hands on the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and said, he's my lamb. And so we come to you boldly, come to that throne of grace in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was full of grace and truth, the one who is ever living to be our intercessor, the one in whom we hope, the one we long to see, the one who is altogether lovely, the one who is the subject of every worthwhile song and every worthwhile story. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope we have in him and the time we have together ahead in these sessions this weekend. Father, bless us as we part tonight. Give us safety on the trip home. In our Savior's great and glorious name. Amen.